The section that I'm about to read to you at the beginning of John chapter 13, if you know the story of Jesus' life, he went about um, preaching, and uh, most of the time he spent away from Jerusalem, but but towards the end of his preaching ministry, um, he always knew in his heart that his entire mission and purpose on earth was to head to Jerusalem, where he would ultimately be crucified for sin. He had a hard time convincing his disciples that he would be put to death. That's not the mission or the plan they had for his life. But Jesus knew in his heart that that's why the Father had put him on earth. And so we end up, at, towards the end of the Gospels, you end up in Jerusalem where, where the, the events are coming to a crunch. And on the evening before, uh, Christ is arrested and, and ultimately put on trial in order to be crucified in the rush and the injustice of all that took place. Just prior to that, they set, he sits down to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. And the beginning, at the beginning of the Passover meal, as he's settling in to this dinner, engages in this ritual with them. Now, typically, um, as they would begin dinner, you know, you would have a servant or a slave come and, uh, uh, and there would be foot washing that took place. And typically, that was not for Gentile servants. It was uh, for not Jewish servants, but Gentile servants, so they couldn't even be a Jew who could wash your feet because of the demeaning nature of the act itself. But the beginning of the dinner, in a very deeply symbolic way, this is what Jesus does. He begins to wash his own disciples' feet because he wanted them to understand something about his purpose and mission on earth and what it is he came to accomplish for each one of us. So let's read then the first 11 verses of John 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. I want then to think about this image of what's taking place here. And we're going to be dwelling on this whole theme of, of what Christ came to do in terms of this, the cleansing power of the cross and, and why that is of interest. But I want to begin just by asking the question at the outset, why is it that people are still interested in Christianity today? Why is it that people are still interested in faith? Why is it that people are still becoming Christians in a day and an age in which so many um, ancient beliefs have passed into the history books and have been, um, have been debunked or disproved or, or relegated to an irrelevancy in our lives, and yet Christianity persists? 
You know, there are so many things that we no longer believe. We no longer believe that there are fairies in the garden or in the woods and in the trees and in the, in the streams. Uh, we no longer believe in that the earth is flat. I know that that one's back on the up and up. Uh, some people are, are, are trying to make the claim that actually, in fact, we are wrong. That it actually is. But let's just leave those people to one side for a second. And we no longer believe. Do you know that just over 100 years or so ago, um, or for, for many centuries, in fact, for millennia, people thought that sickness was, co- was caused by an imbalance in the liquids in your body, that you had four humors, they were called, yellow bile, black bile, blood, and uh, phlegm, delightful. And then when these things come out of balance, that's what made you sick, until they discovered germs, of course. And so we're very much used to this idea in the modern world, aren't we, that things that we once believed as humans, things that had some explanatory power, uh, when they were the dominant belief, when debunked are no longer in our belief system. And yet, Christianity continues to have a potent uh, appeal in that it is growing and growing, and people are being, becoming Christians and being baptized even to this day. And one of the reasons, I think, in answering the question as to why that's the case is that we know, uh, if you're a thinking person, then you know that as much as the modern world has introduced much good into our lives, uh, modernity does not always lead to progress. And in some ways, things that are modern are not always better. So, for example, we know that these days, because of the advances of science, where they, we have antibiotics to pump into our animals so that they grow big and fat and healthy, and we have, we have uh, genetically modified foods, so we can mass-produce calories, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we are better fed, does it? than people who have gone before us. So modernity doesn't always equal progress. It's the same when it comes to communication. We know that you could step out of this room and be in contact with any one of the the hundreds of people who you count as acquaintances or friends who are in your address book within 30 seconds um, from any of them. I know people don't pick up the phone these days, but theoretically you could. And yet, does that mean that we are more close, more intimate, more experienced, deeper community, and we feel more loved or less isolated today. And I don't think the two things necessarily go together. Modernity does not always equal progress. We know this to be true. Or one more example. You know that in your hand you have access to uh, pretty much all the knowledge of humanity as it's been documented, which is a mind-boggling thought does that necessarily mean that you and I are more knowledgeable or more wise than people who've gone before us? And I think, at least I can say for myself, absolutely not. No way. So obviously, just the fact that we're living in the modern age, and particularly the scientific age, it doesn't always lead to, this rea- this, this, uh, to, to what follows, that things are now better, and that we have somehow um, surpassed the past. And I think C.S. Lewis got it right when he talked about the problem of the modern mentality, which is that we, we have this chronological snobbery, as he put it, that because everything's new, we think it's better, when, of course, the ancients thought the other way around. They thought that the better things were the older things. So anything that's tried and tested for, ideally for millennia, is something worthy of trust. These days, we think whatever's hot and new and just off the press is worthy of trust. And he said, that's nothing but chronological snobbery. And when you pause and think about it, he was absolutely right. 
Just because stuff is new does not make it necessarily more right. And in fact, this means that we have to mine history and we have to mine what's ancient, what's lasted in order to know things that are true. Now, if that's, that's true at a very general level, all kinds of areas of life, friendship, community, eating, all the rest of it. The same reasoning can be applied to personal and spiritual matters. That even if we've made progress on all kinds of fronts, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have advanced beyond some of the most fundamental beliefs in terms of faith and spirituality. You take belief in God. It's true that these days, through advances, we can now split the atom. But our ability to split the atom doesn't mean that we can generate them out of nothing. It doesn't mean that we can easily dismiss what John Calvin, the, 15, the preacher in the 1500s, described as the sensus divinitatis, the, the sense that exists in every human heart of the divine. But when you talk to someone else who has aware of spiritual realities, it's like, oh, you too? Well, that's been around in human hearts since the beginning of time. And just because we can do, we have marvels of science today, we haven't done away with belief in God. God is as much present now as he's ever been. Or to take another example, the sanctity of life. Just because we can code your genome, I say we, I don't really mean me, of course. I mean people out there, very clever people. They can document your genetics, your DNA, right down to the last base pair within your DNA sequencing. So that theoretically we could describe you on a piece of paper. But does that in any way sort of encompass who you are? Or explain your value as a human, as a person? Because there are things we understand about the sanctity of life that cannot really be answered by science. The same is true when it comes to the belief in the afterlife. You know, we, we now can live longer than we've ever lived in, in the history of the world because of the miracle of modern medicine. And yet, it's my observation that having been around death from time to time, and that, that one thing that persists, whether from people of faith or not of faith, is the sensation that death is an enemy that's foreign to us. And more than that, there is a belief that there is more beyond death, even in people who aren't quite clear on what that might be. So wherever you look, all I'm trying to show you is that wherever you look, as much as the world has moved forward in so many ways that we are thankful for and grateful for, the reality is that we have not surpassed or moved beyond certain fundamental beliefs when it comes to matters of faith and spirituality. And this brings me to one of the most central, abiding, persistent ideas that all of us intuitively know is real and true, which is the reality of good and evil, as attested to by your conscience, by your heart. So even though we live in a world where we have apparently been able to explain life purportedly, where we're able to now say, sort of debunk the idea of God as so many philosophers and scientists have, have sought to do, and therefore done away with any idea that there is such a thing as an objective moral universe. Morality is nothing more than a fiction in the mind of many, Yet at the same time, hardwired as it were into you is the sense of righteousness and justice and goodness and revulsion against evil. It's deep inside you. 
And you can't easily contradict it without going against the grain of who you are as a human. So that you know certain things are right and certain things are evil. There's good and there's wickedness. And you know it on two levels. You know it when you look out there in the world. So that as you look at the events that are taking place on the world scene right now, you, you see in events as they're unfolding, you see heroes and you see villains. You see nobility in some people and you see selfishness in others. And we make these judgments all the time and we navigate life based on our moral instincts when we're looking at the world out there. But the same friend is true when we begin to turn our eyes inwards and look at our own hearts, our own souls. That as much as we try and outgrow faith, outgrow religion, outgrow spirituality, nevertheless, there is this abiding sense in the human heart that not everything is right with me. And that when you do something that trammels your own conscience, you feel the prick of guilt. And you feel the sense in which guilt is a form of defilement or dirtiness. And this is why the teaching of Jesus on the matter of what it means to be and to feel clean is as relevant to us today as it's ever been and will never be debunked or made irrelevant. I want to show you a few things that come out of this story which are as true now as they've ever been. And the first is this, that there is an absolute need within every one of us to be clean. I mean spiritually, morally clean, to be cleaned up. And Jesus demonstrates this through this bizarre act. He breaks into the dinner proceedings. He takes off his outer garments. He wraps a towel around his waist. He pours a basin of water. And he begins to get down there into the grime and the dirt and the muck and under the toenails of his disciples, getting in between those toes, just rubbing all the dirt out. It was a delightful job. And as he's doing it, he anticipates that there's going to be a little bit of confusion here. They're taken aback by what's taking place. Peter asks him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And of course, true to exactly what Jesus says, you don't understand it. Peter's first instinct is, you shall never wash my feet. Peter found it offensive, embarrassing, that the master who he loved and served and who he adored more than anyone in the whole world was demeaning himself in this way to wash his own feet. You know how hard it can be to receive a favor from a friend, and this is way beyond that. But Jesus then says something striking that is important for us now. He says to Peter in answer, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Why is Jesus so emphatic about this need to be washed? He is not speaking about the outward act of foot washing as it took place there and then. Some people have interpreted this whole passage in an overly literal sense and brought foot washing into Christian practice and ceremony and part of the worship service. 
We don't do that at Grace, and um, we have no plans to institute it either. He absolutely, I don't think in my mind, was talking about the externalities of the situation. What he's rather doing is he's, as so often is the case in the Bible, the physical acts preach something about spiritual realities. That's what's true about baptism. It's not the waters themselves that have any power to cleanse the heart, but the act somehow resonates with spiritual reality. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What does he mean? Well, obviously, he's assuming that there's a dirtiness inside of all of us. He's talking about the moral problem, the moral condition. Elsewhere in Mark's gospel, he talks about this as being defiled. I think this is a sensation, as I'll show you in a moment, that all of us understand at some level. But here's how he puts it in Mark chapter 7. He said, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Because the Jews believed um, that eating certain foods would defile you. And he was saying, look, that's not the issue here. But he said, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The stuff that emerges from your own soul. The stuff that emerges from your own heart. The inclinations, the desires, the temptations. These are the things that make you dirty on the inside, even if you're put together on the outside. And then he begins to list them, and he describes the kinds of things that defile us. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Have you ever had an evil thought? Out of the heart comes sexual immorality. Whether you practice, take, you know, turn it into practice or not, whether you put it into action or not, it's out of the heart, isn't it, that lust emerges. Out of the heart, he says, comes theft. Oh, you may never take something that's not yours, but the desire to do so may be there. Out of the heart comes murder, that anger that he describes elsewhere. Comes adultery, the desire to possess what's not yours or to possess the person who is not yours. Out of the heart comes coveting, wickedness, deceit, the temptation to cover over things that you want others not to know. Sensuality, which means indulging in all your base desires to a degree that is unhealthy and wrong. Envy, wanting what's not yours. Slander, putting other people down. Pride, building yourself up. Foolishness. He said, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, whatever you make about Jesus and whatever you make about faith in general, one thing is true, that when you are honest with yourself, you know exactly what he is talking about and the truthfulness of what he's saying. All of us have these thoughts. All of us have these desires. And you know that when you listen to them and obey them, you feel dirty. Now, this is, for some people, the very thing that is most objectionable and wrong with Christianity. They say, look, this is the problem with religion. You go around making people feel terrible about themselves. You're so judgy. And there's such a sense of insider and outsider. And, of course, I understand and have sympathy with that. I think that there are, there are expressions of religion which are deeply oppressive and unhelpful and make us feel just worse and worse about ourselves. But consider this. We also know at some level that there is something wrong with us and that to deny that, to live in denial of that, doesn't help you at all. I was fascinated a few years ago to read 
a book by an atheist psychologist talking about this phenomenon that we all understand what it feels to be morally dirty. And he cited a study from the University of Toronto by uh, um, a, a researcher there called Chen Bo Zong. And uh, Zong, it said, it, I'll just read you what's put here. Zong had shown that subjects who are asked to wash their hands with soap before filling out questionnaires become more moralistic about issues related to moral purity, such as pornography and drug use. Once you're clean, you want to keep dirty things far away. So you go into a kitchen, you wash your hands, and you go down, sit down and write a questionnaire without realizing that you're being observed and the two things are connected. And as you're writing answers to your questions, suddenly you find things that you know are wrong, that are dirty, that are, that are defiling. You want to keep away from those things. You become more judgy yourself because your hands are clean. There's a connection here. And then the same researcher played the, whole, the same thing in reverse and showed that the, the same is also true backwards. That immorality makes people want to get clean. People who are asked to recall their own moral transgressions. So just to tell the stories of the things that you've done wrong, that you're ashamed of, or merely to copy by hand an account of someone else's moral transgression, find themselves thinking about cleanliness more often and wanting more strongly to cleanse themselves. So when you, when you rehearse in your mind, the things that bring a flush to your cheek and make you feel embarrassed, ashamed, the things that maybe you've not told anybody. You want to be clean. And maybe the only way you know how to be clean is to physically wash as some kind of attempt to purge what's inside and what you feel ashamed about. And so it's concluded that there is a two-way street between our bodies and our righteous minds. Immorality makes us feel physically dirty, and cleansing ourselves can sometimes make us more concerned about guarding our moral purity. I find this utterly fascinating. It just demonstrates what I've been trying to say to you from the very start. As much as we might think that we may one day outgrow some of these ideas and notions as though they were barbaric and ancient and wrong, the reality is you cannot deny what your soul attests to you to be true. You are a moral being under the watchful eye of God and that your deepest need, the need which, is, which trumps every other need in you is to feel totally clean. And Jesus said to here in this binary choice, he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, you can either have your sin but not have Jesus or you can be cleansed of your sin and you can have Jesus. And to have Jesus is to have the source of joy, the source of happiness, the source of life. It's to know the one who made you and who gave you desires that they might be filled and satisfied by him. That's the choice that he lays in front of you in which I think you all have to reckon with. This is why Peter instantly answers him and says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter, in his typically whiplash fashion, goes from don't wash me at all to wash everything, Lord Jesus, because he cannot bear the thought that he would not have a share with Jesus, that he would not know Jesus, that he would not relate intimately with Christ. There is an absolute need, in other words, for every one of us to be clean. Peter felt it. You know it in the deepest part of you. 
I've never met a person who doesn't understand or identify with that at some level in their being. This brings me to the second idea then. What is shown here is that only Jesus can cleanse you. It has to be him. And again, I know that I'm triggering tripwires and landmines um, in terms of what is culturally offensive to say. And this is offensive on two levels. It's offensive because it's saying it offends our pride. You say, are you really saying that I can't live a moral life without Jesus? That only he can, can lead me into a, a moral life? And it's also offensive on another level in terms of inclusiveness. We live in a day and an age in which it is wrong to have some kind of claim to exclusive truth. And therefore, instinctually, many people in our generation, if they hear some, someone professing, look, Jesus is, is God, Jesus is the Son of God, you have to believe in him. He's the only way. That instantly triggers us as something that seems intuitively wrong. No, surely everyone has access to truth, and it can't just be one way. You say, are you really saying that Christ is the only way, that he's better in some sense? But listen, it's not me that's saying this, it's Jesus. He says to Peter, if I do not wash you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus was time and time again making this claim to exclusivity about himself. Let me just quickly answer those objections in turn. First one, am I saying that you can't live a moral life without Jesus? No, I'm not saying that at all. I think there are many people in this world, countless people in this world, who are living lives that are on so many levels worthy of admiration. And often that has nothing to do with their faith or lack of faith. And I'm not in any way trying to suggest to you that the Christian way is the only pathway to living a moral life. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that I think you kind of missed the point here, friend. Because the issue is not whether you can live a moral life. The issue is whether you can atone for the wrongs that you have done. Whether the wrongs that you have done can be washed away. That's what Jesus presses us on. He says, if I do not wash you. Christ wants us to change. He wants us to live godly lives. But the more pressing issue is, how do you cover over the wrongs that you have done? And he says, I have to do it for you, friend. And what about this objection about the exclusivity? When it's, where you might say, well, listen, can, can it really be said that Christ's way is the only way? Am I really saying that Jesus is better? To which I would answer, yes, a thousand times yes, Christ's way is the only way. He is better. And part of the reason why I feel so confident about this is that, you know, even in this, this little story, you get clues into his nature and reality that make Jesus portrayed vividly before our eyes as a unique man and as the most precious person who's ever lived. Listen to how the chapter opened. He said, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What is being described here is the selfless love that compelled the Lord Jesus Christ on this otherwise avoidable journey to the cross. At this point, no one had arrested him. But he knew that his hour had come to depart. He knew his hour had come to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. And he asked the question, well, why did he go there? 
Why did he so willingly, voluntarily subject himself to the injustice of the cross? And the answer, John tells us, is because he loved his own to the end. And he's not just speaking about the disciples there. He's speaking about you and me. And it makes me conclude this, that there is no one in the history of the world who has loved humanity the way Jesus does or has loved you as much as he has. His love makes him unique. There's also his nature. You look a little bit further down in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, that he possessed all authority in heaven and on earth. And that he had come from God. In other words, he was divine. And that he was going back to God, to his rightful place at the Father's right hand. What we're seeing here as occurs all the way through the gospel narratives of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, is this affirmation that Jesus was not just an ordinary person like you or I, but that he had existed even before he was born into human flesh, that he was divine. And therefore, when we are putting Christ, as it were, alongside so many other options for spiritual gurus and teachers and leaders of all kinds and stripes, The one thing which causes him to emerge above them all is the credibility and even provability of his claim that he is divine. Attested by his resurrection from the dead, an event that was witnessed by hundreds of people and which gave birth to the early church. We wouldn't be here today if he were not risen from the dead. And then there's also what it says in verse 4, how it says he... He knew that he'd come from God, was going back to God, and then he, what did he do? He didn't stand up there with his scepter and rule as he could have done. It says, rather, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, began washing their feet. When you meet Jesus in the Gospels, you meet someone of such radiant, evident perfection and purity that all men and women who've lived before or since pale in comparison to him. We see it in his extraordinary humility and worthiness here. He's a master you want to bow down to and serve because he first has served you. Even when you weren't asking for it, this is what he's come to do, to wash your feet, to cleanse you. And so this is why, friend, I say without hesitation or embarrassment, not only that you have to be clean, but that it has to be Jesus who cleans you. He says it a little bit more explicitly in the next chapter of John's gospel, in John chapter 14, verse 6, when it said, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And part of that experience of what he means to come to the Father through him is he's saying, I have to clean you up, friend. I have to wash you clean if you're to have any hope of coming to God. Which brings me to the last thing that I think we have to understand about this cleansing work of Jesus. You only need to be cleansed once. When Jesus explains to Peter the necessity of being clean. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter 
Peter's reaction, I think, expresses the religious angst that is there in every heart that's sensitive to spiritual reality. When Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, Lord, I'm so anxious at this point that I might not be considered acceptable. God, help me. Cleanse me. And he's giving voice to the angst that's there within every heart that is sensitive to the reality of God's holiness and our flawed reality, our defilement. Lord, I must be clean. How can I be clean enough for you? And Jesus immediately moves in with a comforting word. Because he says to Peter in response to this, he says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. What Jesus was doing there was he was articulating the two central doctrines that live at the heart of the Christian understanding of of personal transformation and, and the gospel. These great words that sound intimidating at first, but really are hope and life to us, of justification and sanctification. Let me just explain to you how I see this here. The first is this idea of justification. And what this means is that When Christ went to the cross for you, he took upon himself all of your sin. Not just the sins of your past that you have committed up till now. Not just the sins that exist even in your heart at this very moment. But the sins that you are yet to commit. And he took them all upon himself when he died on the cross. And as he bled out his lifeblood, his blood was shed to make atonement, to cleanse you from your sin. Past, present, and future. Which means that anyone who has Believed upon him, all your sin is dealt with there on the cross once and for all. Which means it can never be held against you. You can never be considered dirty. You can never be considered defiled. You can never be condemned. You can never be called unworthy. You're justified. You're pronounced righteous. And for me, this is the deepest most important source of joy and comfort and happiness in my life. I'm very aware of the mess that I make of things on a daily basis. And I feel like the older I grow in my faith and my walk with Jesus, the more sensitive I become and more acutely aware I become of how flawed I am. But I don't sink into the pit about this because I know what Jesus says about me. He says, you are clean. You are clean. And the same thing can be said about you, brother or sister. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you've believed in him, you've asked him to wash you, he says to you, you're clean. And I think that 99% of our problems of soul and of mind could be dealt with if only we could accept that truth. At the root of so much of our dysfunction and our misery and our unhappiness and our anxiety is this fundamental problem of guilt. And Christ comes in and he says, you're clean. And that's the power of the Christian gospel. That when a heart really accepts this reality, this truth, you're opened up to God in a whole new way. You want 
to know him in a deeper way. You, you don't hesitate to move towards him. You feel unashamed. You feel uncondemned. You feel accepted. You feel loved and you feel clean. That is justification. It means no sense of unworthiness. It means no doubt or anxiety about your condition. It means no worry about your future. It means you're his and you know it. But he also brings in with it this other idea of sanctification. Because he offers this strange caveat, doesn't he? He says, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Of course, what Jesus was speaking about here is that in a kind of symbolic sense, Christian, even though you've been cleansed from all your sin, nevertheless, we live in a fallen world and you are going to walk through muck in this life. You're exposed to temptations on a daily, even momentary basis. And some of that muck sticks to you, doesn't it? You feel the flicker of your heart saying yes to illicit desires. And suddenly you feel dirty again. So the stuff outside of you and the stuff inside of you that means that we do experience failure on a day-to-day basis. And what Jesus says, this is what's paradoxical, paradoxical about the Christian faith. He says at one and the same time, you are totally clean, brother or sister, and yet let me wash your feet. Let me just heal you up again. The Christian's highest goal then is that having believed on Jesus and known that every sin has been atoned for at the cross, the Christian's highest goal, your deepest desire is, I want to be like him. I want to continually put behind me the mess that makes me feel ashamed. The dirtiness, the stuff that I don't want anyone to know about. I want to put it behind me. Here's how it's put by Paul in one of his letters. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, press on in the cleansing work of Jesus. Let him continually wash your feet every day. Come to him to be cleansed. I want to bring this to a close and just say that I think there are two kinds of people here. There are those here who recognize that sense of dirtiness, that there are things on your conscience that that weigh you down. There's part of you that knows I need to be clean. And you've never come to God before and asked for forgiveness. Do you know that you can become a Christian on the spot? There is nothing you need to do except to ask Lord, come and cleanse me. And by trusting him in that act and asking him, Jesus moves in. He moves in swiftly. He moves in instantly. And he says, you're clean. And it may be the case that you want that today. And there are the rest of us who, having been already saved and brought into this family and known what it is to be cleansed from our past and know what it is to belong to Jesus, nevertheless, You need to come to him and have your feet washed again. You belong to him already, but there's stuff that you've been walking through. There's muck that you've been treading through that he wants to get off of your feet. And that requires confession. It requires receiving his grace in a fresh way. And I never underestimate the power and importance of an instant, a moment like this, when we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you wash my feet? 
Would you cleanse me again?